Well, well, I bet you didn't think you'd hear from me again, eh, listeners? Andy Roberts here, back on the air with a special Halloween episode of the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Almost entirely unplanned and spontaneous, I thought I'd return to the show because of the fact that in spite of world events, the spooky season has come upon us again already. Autumnal colours, dry leaves and those crisp mornings and warm evenings are here to stay as we head towards the final stretch of the year. So what better time to return to the streets of Haddonfield, Illinois for a special episode on the Halloween sequels, The Return of Michael Myers and The Revenge of Michael Myers, or Halloween 4 and 5 respectively. When I started the podcast many years ago now, I had a vision in mind about why I was doing it and what I wanted it to lead to. But now, of course, it's five years on, and a lot of stuff has changed. As I mentioned on my last episode, I managed to hone some of my writing, and I now produce articles for Horrified Magazine, who you should absolutely follow on Twitter, as they're a dear friend of the podcast, and they cover British horror news, and also Daily Grindhouse, which is based in the US. Even more excitedly, I recorded my first legitimate film commentary for an as-yet-unannounced Blu-ray release from a major US company. Now, all I can say is that it's one of the Section 3 Video Nasty films that hasn't had a modern release yet, so it will be a worldwide first. And, of course, I'm making extremely good progress on my book, which means that soon I'll be starting to promote the eventual release of it. As such, Nasty Pasty will soon be finding a different home in the near future, and I have some ambitious plans for the future too, so all I can say is stay tuned, as I hopefully have some more exciting projects to unveil. It's also very likely that I'll carry on with articles. I'm currently doing a deep dive at the moment on some of Fulci's work, and I'll be doing more work for future releases, hopefully. All very, very exciting, but let's get back to the heart of the topic, Halloween. It's a natural choice to cover the Halloween films on such a seasonable time of the year, even more so when we're only a week or so past the release of Halloween Kills, the sequel to 2018's Halloween, which ignores all of the series' continuity so far, with the exception of the original 1978 film from John Carpenter. We've also covered, historically, Halloween 1, 2 and 3 already, so it makes eventual sense that we would get around to 4 and 5. Before we do, though, let's do a brief recap about where the series was at this point. The original Halloween was released to rave audience reaction in 1978, kick-starting the slasher boom until the release of Friday the 13th, where it ca- which catapulted it into popularity. The film featured the murderous Michael Myers, who stabs his sister to death when he was just six years old, and he's sent to a mental institution until his 21st year, upon which he escapes and targets a group of teenagers, culminating with his shooting at the hands of his doctor, Loomis, saving the life of babysitter Laurie Strode. After several years, Halloween 2 was released in 1981, with an increased gore quotient and tropes to bring it more in line with analogous slashes at the time. Set on the same Halloween night as the original, Laurie is hospitalised after her ordeal, only for the surviving Michael to track her down to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, slaying the hospital staff as he searches for Laurie, revealed to Loomis to be Michael's younger sister, who was adopted into a new family after the childhood murders. As explained previously on the show, Halloween 3 was designed to take the series in a different direction, specifically that of an anthology which would deal with Halloween-based stories. Thus, Season of the Witch was born, following Dr. Jan Chalice as a series of bizarre murders leads him to the Silver Shamrock Company. Run by Connell Cochran, 
it's revealed that a grand conspiracy is in effect to return Halloween to its Celtic and sanguine roots by sacrificing trick-or-treaters using arcane-powered Halloween masks that kill the wearer. Obviously, the change in genre and direction, as well as the lack of supernatural killer Michael Myers, didn't go down very well with contemporaneous audiences. The anthology structure was quickly abandoned, with the Halloween franchise remaining dormant due to the poor reception. It finally returned in 1988, with Dwight H. Little's Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. As usual on the show, we'll go through the synopsis before we dive into the background. So, here we go. In 1988, almost 10 years after his initial crime spree in Haddonfield, Michael Myers is scheduled to be transferred from Ridgemont Sanitarium back to Smith's Grove. During the journey, the paramedics reveal that Laurie Strode gave birth to a little girl called Jamie, who still lives in Haddonfield, upon which Michael awakens and kills the crew, escaping into the night. In Haddonfield, young Jamie is living with foster parents, Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers, and their daughter Rachel, after the death of Laurie 11 months prior in a car crash. Jamie is haunted by nightmares of Michael, whilst Dr. Loomis verbally berates Ridgemont's Dr. Hoffman for letting Myers leave the facility, especially after they discover the wreckage of the ambulance. On Halloween morning, the Carruthers ask Rachel to look after Jamie for the evening, forcing Rachel to cancel her date with her boyfriend Brady. Loomis begins pursuit of Michael, catching up to him at a gas station where the staff are freshly killed. The pair briefly encounter each other before Michael escapes with a boiler suit from the dead mechanic. Whilst previously reluctant, Jamie likes the idea of trick-or-treating and goes with Rachel to get a costume. After selecting a clown costume, Jamie encounters Michael who steals a mask before making a quick getaway. Loomis manages to hitchhike to Haddonfield by getting a ride from a reverend while Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers leave for a party. Jamie dons her costume and Rachel takes her out to the streets, whilst Loomis arrives at the police station and informs Sheriff Mika about the situation. While visiting door-to-door, Rachel discovers her boyfriend Brady getting intimate with Kelly, the sheriff's daughter, causing the pair to have a brief altercation, during which Jamie wanders off with other children. Michael kills a worker at a power substation, causing the town's power to be cut out, and then briefly pursues Rachel in the streets before she's reunited with Jamie. Sheriff Mika and Loomis find the pair and escort them to safety, but upon reaching the police station, they discover that Michael has slaughtered all of the officers and destroyed the equipment. A group of townspeople arrive and notice the damage, forming a posse to hunt Myers down, only to accidentally kill a youth when they mistake him for Myers. 
Mika brings Rachel, Jamie and Loomis to his own home with a deputy, interrupting Brady and Kelly, who are in the midst of foreplay. The residents barricade themselves in the house, unaware that Michael has hitched a ride to the home in the back of the deputy's car and has already breached the house. Loomis leaves for the Carruthers, whilst Mika goes out to put a stop to the posse before someone else is hurt. Kelly enters the living room to offer coffee to the deputy, only to discover his corpse on the floor. She's then assailed by Michael, who impales her to a door using a shotgun. Brady tries to defend Jamie and Rachel against Maya's assault, but has his face crushed by the maniac, allowing the girls to flee to the attic. Finding a dead end, they exit from the window and traverse the roof, only for Michael to catch them off guard, injuring Rachel when she falls from the roof. An upset Jamie runs from the house and wanders the empty streets, eventually running into Loomis who takes her to the school. Michael immediately finds them and knocks Loomis aside, only for Jamie to be rescued by Rachel with a fire extinguisher. The posse arrive on the scene after hearing the commotion, and decide to take Jamie and Rachel out of town as the state police begin to arrive. Unbeknownst to the passengers, Michael has hitched a ride on the truck and swiftly dispatches of the Hicks, with Rachel being forced to take the wheel as Myers attacks her. Slamming on the brakes, she forces Michael off the vehicle and immediately runs him down, seemingly killing him. As Mika and the other officers arrive, Jamie touches her uncle's hand just as he begins to awaken yet again. Mika and the posse open fire on Myers, causing him to fall backwards into a mineshaft, dead. Back at the Carruthers' house, Jamie and Rachel recuperate as Loomis is relieved that finally Michael has died. As Mrs. Carruthers runs a bath, an unknown assailant attacks her while wearing a mask, stabbing her with scissors. As Loomis looks upstairs and screams no, he sees an emotionless Jamie holding a bloody pair of scissors and attempts to shoot her, only for Mika to stop him as the rest of the family look on in horror. Tonight, Brady was ready to make a commitment. But now, my future relationship, my engagement, my marriage, my children, and your grandchildren have all been wiped out because I have to babysit. Oh, joy. I'm sorry I ruined everything. I wasn't here. You can go out. Oh. Good job, Rachel. That little girl needs all the love we can give her right now. All you can do is think about yourself. Jamie? I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. I can go out with Brady tomorrow night. It's no big deal. She wants to go out tonight. It's my fault you can't. Well, tonight we're going to do something better. We're going to go trick-or-treating. I don't want to. It's Halloween. I mean, don't you want to get dressed up in a really scary costume and get some candy? How about this afternoon I pick you up from school and we go get ice cream? Double scoops? <sighs> Double scoops. Now let's get some breakfast. After a significant hiatus in the franchise, Halloween 4 attempts to return to the original feel and style of John Carpenter's original film in 1978, with an overall objective to revisit the traditional slasher template which was still popular in the 80s. After the experimental story of Halloween 3, Producer Mustafa Akkad was eager to revive the Michael Myers character as he felt it was integral to the franchise's success. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, the pair behind the successes of the series so far, 
wrote a treatment along with Dennis Etchison that brought back Myers but blended it with the explicit supernatural tone of the third film. Set ten years after Halloween 2, Haddonfield has censored the holiday of Halloween permanently, with costumes and trick-or-treating banned among the townspeople due to Michael's massacre. After so much repression regarding the holiday, and with younger children beginning to yearn for the seasonal festivity, Michael eventually returns as a ghostly spectre to haunt the town, forcing the townspeople to fight him and consider whether acknowledging the past and accepting Halloween is better than suppressing their trauma. Akkad, however, disliked this idea and wished to employ a more standard structure to the film, causing Carpenter and Hill to sell their rights to the franchise away, and Etchison's script was discarded. Instead, a new screenplay was penned by Alan B. McElroy, frantically delivered in just 11 days, hours before a major writer's strike was due to happen. It had some differences from what would be eventually filmed, such as the character of Jamie, who was originally known as Britty, which was short for Britain. Sheriff Mika was also killed in the original draft by Michael in the Mika's basement, where a spilled furnace would eventually set the house ablaze, leading to the rooftop sequence of Jamie and Rachel's escape being much more frantic. The characters of Lindsay Wallace and Tommy Doyle from the original film were also due to have prominent roles, but after some cuts to the budget this idea was dropped, leading to the arbitrary scenes of Lindsay driving Rachel to the store and Tommy hanging out with Wade and Brady at the said store being the only leftovers of this particular plot point. Tommy and Lindsay having larger roles was eventually used in the recent release of Halloween Kills, which also occurred in some of the film's other discarded sequences. A scripted scene in the school where Jamie avoids Michael by hiding under school desks was instead featured in Steve Miner's Halloween H20, while the film's original ending of having Rachel stabbed to death by Jamie with a pair of scissors was instead repurposed for the direct sequel Halloween 5. Filming commenced in April of 1988 in Salt Lake City in Utah. Due to the fact that it was summertime, similar to the original crew of Carpenter's classic, the crew had to import leaves and reuse them between shots, as well as using painted squashes to stand in for the pumpkins as they were not available out of season. Principal photography took around a month and a half, with Danielle Harris and Ellie Cornell being required for a majority of the shoot. According to the crew, the spirit of the production was to take inspiration only from the original Halloween film, and not from any of the subsequent sequels, focusing on atmosphere, tension, and bloodlessness. Thanks to the experience of producer Paul Freeman, the shoot was described as a well-oiled machine that had hardly any problems, especially with the cast, who were almost universally described as perfect. That's not to say that the shoot was without its problems, of course, especially in the makeup department. In order to bridge the gap between the ending of Halloween 2 and legitimise Loomis's survival of the Inferno, the character was daubed in burn makeup to his face and hand. Upon viewing them with his girlfriend, though, whilst intoxicated, Pleasance suddenly became aware of how much the makeup looked like an egg on his face. After requesting a change, the new makeup effect rectified this look, but during the editing process, some shots of the egg look ended up in the final cut. Another major problem arose related to Michael's mask, which had to be remade as the one from the original two films had since become damaged beyond use. Six masks were produced using the same William Shatner likeness from the original productions, though when they arrived on set, they had pink skin with dishwater blonde hair. Despite the production team being sceptical of the producer's reaction, they filmed several sequences with the original Michael Myers actor, stuntman Tom Morgan, 
before someone finally raised the concern. The masks were eventually painted white, and the hair was teased thoroughly with dark hair dye, rendering it dark brown. Producers were reportedly still unhappy with the way the mask looked, and requested makeup technician Ken Horn to make excessive alterations to the mask before any more footage was shot. When Horn explained the process could not be done safely in the time that they wanted, a producer unceremoniously fired Horn from the production, only reinstated when a Fangoria writer who was on set at the same time warned that if Horn wasn't brought back, Fangoria would exclude any promotions for the film in their publication. Tom Morga, however, was eventually replaced by George Wilbur sometime into production, leaving the scenes at the gas station, some of the schoolhouse scenes, and the moment of Kelly's death as the only leftovers of Morga's participation. In fact, the original erroneous blonde mask can also be spotted in one shot during the school sequence. Extra care was also given to Danielle Harris, so as not to scare her during intense sequences. Actor George Wilbur would remove the Michael mask periodically and gently remind her that it was just him and that it was all make-believe. Harris's terrified acting, however, was effective enough that several neighbours called the police for real when hearing her screams as she ran through the streets, causing her to almost be removed from the set. Another major mishap on set was that of the fight between Michael and Brady, when a gaffer accidentally fell whilst adjusting a light and cut his wrists on shattered glass requiring immediate hospitalisation. Similarly, Ellie Cornell badly cut herself on a nail during the rooftop sequence, losing a lot of blood and requiring serious medical attention. In spite of this, she returned to the set within hours to complete filming the scenes. Once production had wrapped, it was evident that the filmmaker's approach was too similar to the original film, as the producers were unhappy with the lack of on-screen gore. Additional reshoots were planned to increase the gore, including the opening killing of the ambulance man, with a thumb going through his skull, the throat ripping of Earl in the film's final act, and a scene of a mechanic having a crowbar shoved down his throat. Unfortunately, the crowbar death was not filmed due to concerns over the strangeness of the effect, so it was instead relegated to an off-screen stabbing. Another interesting little tidbit is the opening sequence of the film, which is starkly rich in colour and features scenes of the countryside and rural areas of Haddonfield, which was included due to the director's research into Halloween's origins and its relation to seasonal harvests. In a neat little way, it almost links up to the unrelated predecessor, Halloween 3, with its more dedicated focus on more traditional elements of the holiday. The film was released in cinemas on October 21st, 1988. Despite not gaining much sympathy from critical voices, Halloween 4 fed much better with audiences overall, who praised the return of the series' antagonist, as well as the dedication to replicating the success of the original slasher film. It opened at number one at the box office on opening weekend, grossing $17 million against a relatively modest $5 million budget. More recently, the film's reception has improved amongst horror and slasher fans in general, especially when compared with the later sequels in the series, and considering the fact that the golden age of slashers was over by the time of Halloween 4's release. Personally, I'm in agreement with this appraisal. The film certainly might seem by the numbers to a lot of people, but it's an extremely decent take on the Halloween franchise, with enough likeable characters to warrant a watch. And whilst it's mostly on the tame side when it comes to the violence, with admittedly a few surprising nasty shocks along the way, the film does a great job at recreating the seasonal spirit of Haddonfield that was experienced in the original two films. 
The film is available in lots of different formats, even most recently having an Ultra HD 4K release from Screen Factory in the US. Donald Pleasance returned in the role of Dr. Loomis for the film. We've talked about him before on the show, obviously because he's been in the original Halloween films. Ellie Cornell, who played Rachel, would reprise the role for Halloween 5, and also starred in the UA Ball video game adaptation House of the Dead and its direct-to-video sequel. Danielle Harris played Jamie, and this would be her debut into horror films. She reappeared in Halloween 5, as well as Daylight, Rob Zombie's remakes of Halloween and Halloween 2, and also Hatchet 2 and Hatchet 3. George Wilbur, who played Michael, was a stuntman, who worked on both Halloween 5 and Halloween 6 afterwards, as well as Mars Attacks, Spider-Man, Die Hard, Escape from New York, amongst many others. Michael Pataki, who played Hoffman, has been featured before on Nasty Pasty, but he's been in stuff like Grave of the Vampire and Graduation Day, and he also directed Mansion of the Doomed. Kathleen Kinmont, who played Kelly, popped up again in Reanimator 2 and 1997's Stranger in the House, whilst Sasha Jensen, who played Brady, popped up in Ghoulies 2, Deadly Stranger, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, and The Unnameable 2, The Statement of Randolph Carter. Director Dwight H. Little had a relatively successful career after the success of Halloween 4. Some of his other projects included 1989's Phantom of the Opera, Free Willy 2, Anaconda's The Hunt for the Blood Orchid, and the video game adaptation Tekken, as well as TV episodes of Law and Order, The X-Files, and Bones. Writer Alan B. McElroy went on to write the 1997 version of Spawn, the Marine, and several entries in the Wrong Turn franchise, including the most recent 2021 remake. We've mentioned producer Mustafa Akkad before as the powerhouse behind the continuing Halloween franchise before his death in 2005. Producer Paul Freeman had an established background in TV content, which accounts for the skill and panache that the film achieved on a low budget. Freeman would continue with the Halloween series until 2002's Halloween Resurrection, whilst other producer, Mohamed Sanusi, had worked previously on the slasher film The Lamp, and also The Aurora Encounter. Composer Alan Howarth returned from Halloween 2 and 3 to score the music from Halloween 4, still using many of the themes originated by John Carpenter. Cinematographer Peter Leons Collister had quite a mixed filmography post-Halloween 4, that included things like Problem Child, Dunstan Checks In, Mr. Deeds, the remake of the Amityville Horror, Garfield 2, and several of the Alvin and the Chipmunks movies. The special effects were done by quite a chunky team of professionals, one of which was Wayne Toth, who'd worked on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Death Becomes Her, The Giver, New Nightmare, Army of Darkness, The Faculty, House on Haunted Hill, the 1999 remake, and a few of Rob Zombie's horror examples, like the Halloween remakes and House of a Thousand Corpses. But another was John Cobb Weckler, who worked on Ghoulies, Troll, From Beyond, Dolls, Friday the 13th Part 7, which he also directed, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Carnosaur, and Hatchet, and many, many others. So, that was Halloween 4. Let's waste no time and go directly into the next film, Halloween 5.
of the previous film, Michael Myers is shot and falls down a mine shaft. Shortly afterwards, Mika and the other officers flood the shaft with dynamite, though Michael survives by crawling through loose rocks and into the nearby river. Washing ashore outside a hermit's habitat, he falls unconscious as the old man living there secures his body in his home. A year later, Jamie has been admitted to a local children's clinic, rendered mute and traumatised by her encounter with Myers and her subsequent attack on her foster mother. After awakening from a nightmare, Jamie becomes aware of Michael's presence through a strange telepathy, as simultaneously Myers awakens from his coma and murders the hermit who saved him, causing Jamie to suffer a violent reaction. Rachel and her new friend Tina both come to visit the visibly excited Jamie, only for the visit to be cut short by a brick coming through the window, with a nasty message about Jamie. Loomis explains that the townspeople are afraid that Jamie will become just like Michael, with Rachel feeling guilty that she's soon going to leave town for a trip. Rachel and Tina leave, with Rachel heading back home to get dressed. Michael follows her and stalks her, with Jamie becoming aware of it and alerting Loomis. Rachel is informed by Loomis and she leaves the house to be safe, only to return when it seems that it was a false alarm after all. Upon her return, she is killed by Michael with a pair of scissors, causing Jamie to have another severe episode. Loomis informs Mika that Michael may still be alive, whilst Tina unsuccessfully tries to find Rachel at her house, assuming that she's just left for the trip. Michael, now interested by Tina, follows her and watches as she meets with her friend Sammy and boyfriend Mike. Loomis implores the disturbed Jamie to help him find Michael, while a mysterious stranger in black arrives in Haddonfield. Loomis returns to the Myers house, and hints that he's aware of what Michael wants with Jamie, as the mysterious man in black is revealed to be in the house as well. Michael, meanwhile, continues to stalk Tina, Sammy and Mike, as well as Sammy's boyfriend, Spitz, as they try to get alcohol for a Halloween party later that night. Michael corners Mike at the back of a store as he gets the booze, killing him with a handrake to the face and stealing his clothes and mask. As the man in black watches on, Michael arrives in costume at Rachel's house, and picks up Tina, causing another episode to Jamie. Loomis asks her what she can see, and she successfully communicates where Tina is, saving her life. After trying to mollify Jamie's fears, Tina leaves again, getting two officers to drive her to the farm party. Jamie, unwilling to risk anyone else, tries to walk there with the help of fellow child Billy. At the party, Sammy, Spitz and Tina find a barn full of kittens and explore a little, with Sammy and Spitz eventually deciding to stay and have sex. In the middle of the act, Michael spears Spitz in the back with a pitchfork, covering Sammy in blood. She tries to defend herself, only for Michael to kill her with a scythe. As the party reaches its end, Tina returns to the barn, only to find the bodies of her friends. She tries to get assistance from the two cops that drove her to the party, but finds them dead as well in their car seats. She then hears Jamie's screams as Michael begins pursuing her by car, trying to run her down. 
As Jamie and Billy cause a distraction, Michael drives wildly around to give chase, only to crash into a tree. As he emerges from the car and moves to attack Jamie, Tina sacrifices herself and is stabbed to death by Myers, so that Billy and Jamie can escape. Loomis secures the kids and hands them to Mika, finally gaining Jamie's trust to try and defeat Michael. Loomis implores Michael to return home and brings Jamie to the Myers house with Mika and a bunch of officers. After a distress call is received at a clinic, most of the officers abandon the house, leaving Loomis, Jamie and a deputy alone. As Myers breaches the house, Loomis tries to reason with him and tells him that Jamie is the key to removing his rage, only for Michael to slash him across the chest and toss him aside. The deputy protecting Jamie is killed when Michael breaks into the room, forcing Jamie to flee down a laundry chute. Michael catches her in the basement and manages to injure her by stabbing through the chute's walls, whereupon she climbs into the attic and discovers the dead bodies of Rachel and Mike. Michael finds her again, but stays his hand when she calls him uncle, and lets his guard down enough to remove his mask, but he reacts with rage when Jamie tries to touch his face. She narrowly escapes him only for a crazed Loomis to use Jamie as bait to lure him into a trap. It fails, however, and eventually he collapses from exhaustion after beating Michael unconscious with a wooden plank. Mika and the others arrive and finally imprison Michael, with him surmising that the madman will spend the rest of his life in a maximum security prison. As Jamie leaves the police station with an officer, the man in black arrives and causes an explosion. After a cacophony of screams and gunfire, Jamie enters the building again, sobbing at the sight of multiple dead officers and Michael's cell, which is ominously empty. Tina, don't go. I have to. Why? Because you might not understand, but when you're older, there are people you're going to meet who make you feel, like, connected. Like your heart is made of neon, and when you find them, you have to be with them. But he was with you. Who? The boogeyman. Oh, yeah, that's one way of describing him. He doesn't know. Honey, I will come back later tonight, and I will sleep with you right here. I'll be back. I love you. Tina! Why don't you stay the night? Oh, I'm sorry. I gotta run. Tina, please. Stay away, okay? You know, you're really creepy filling that little girl with all that boogeyman crap. I believe that you're in danger. Jamie believes it, too. Jamie's a nine-year-old girl. Be sensible. I don't think it's an uncontroversial issue to mention that Halloween 5 was somewhat rushed into production, especially after the box office success of the fourth instalment. Producer Mustafa Akkad put into motion the production for Halloween 5 almost immediately, with the first version of the screenplay penned by Shem Bitterman. This initial vision was set several years after the conclusion of Halloween 4 and continued the sinister development of Jamie, who's continued on a murderous spree in her teenage years. At the same time, Michael Myers returns and continues his own body count, all whilst Rachel is caught in the midst of the furore. Mustafa Akkad, however, intensely disliked this idea, likening it to a satire of slasher films, which led to a second version being pitched by director Robert Harders, 
which was much more supernatural in origin, and took inspiration from Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, depicting Myers being resurrected by a bolt of lightning. This idea too was rejected, leading Akkad to bring on Michael Jacobs to rewrite the film from scratch. The third version was very similar to the finished film, though it started to bear a lot more mystical elements, which would later form the basis of the Cult of Thorn plot that would be greater explored in the sequel, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. After hiring director Dominique Offenin-Girard, he also made additions to the script, including Jamie's telepathic link with her uncle. The film also opened not with a hermit who nurses Michael back to health, but an enigmatic character nicknamed Dr. Death, who would supernaturally revive Myers using occult symbols and rituals. Other elements present in the original script included Billy being an expert BMX rider, Michael being ensnared in a cage in his own house in the ending, Tina being killed early in the film with Rachel retaining her much larger role as Jamie's protector, and a sequence of Michael Myers decimating a SWAT team who attack him. Donald Pleasant, who returned as Sam Loomis, was in major disagreement with the direction of the narrative, confident that continuing with the ending of Halloween 4 and having Jamie grow steadily more evil had much more merit. While the script was ambitious and contained a lot of material, the screenplay was not yet finalised and many details were yet to be decided. In spite of this, principal photography started in May of 1989, remaining within Salt Lake City just like the last film. This is noticeable in certain shots, such as the return of the Carruthers house and the general store where Jamie gets her clown outfit from. Starting even deeper into summertime than the last film, Halloween 5 certainly bears a much sunnier look and feel despite being set during autumn. Not as much care and attention was dedicated to replicating the fall environment, evident by the fact that the deciduous trees haven't shed their foliage in many shots. Other problems turned up in the form of the mask, which is notably different from the previous film in that it's significantly larger, and is worn with the neck untidily untucked. The original plan was to reuse the same mask that George Wilbur wore in the previous film, but the larger head size of the new Michael, played by Don Shanks, necessitated a new one being made, which was actually hard to wear due to lack of ventilation. Compared to the first two films, the Myers house also has a huge disparity in this film as a larger house was used instead of the smaller, Victorian-styled home in the originals. This again was necessary to factor in the many sequences involving a laundry chute, a basement and an attic, but eagle-eyed Halloween fans will undoubtedly notice the continuity issue with this. The laundry chute itself was an incredibly complex beast, divided into 30 sections of varying laterality and positioning making it a miraculous feat that the sequence was actually shot in a single night. So too was the car chasing sequence with Jamie, Tina and Billy, though it was not without its own problems. Wendy Foxworth, who played Tina, accidentally tripped over a cape during one shot and was an inch from being mown over by Shanks, who was operating the vehicle. When the penultimate shot of Michael crashing into a tree was filmed, most of the cast and crew gathered to see the explosion happen on the set. The resultant blaze was so impressive that the director forgot to yell cut, leading Shanks to remain in the burning car for an inordinately long time, until someone realised and belatedly yelled cut, saving him from potential injury. Shanks, however, did sustain an injury during the sequence where Loomis beats him repeatedly with a 2 by 4 One particular strike caught his nose and broke it. Despite the occasional lack of attention, however, 
The shoot was almost entirely pleasant in terms of the cast. Donald Pleasance wrapped his scenes within two weeks and heartwarmingly gifted his trailer to young Danielle Harris to use for the rest of the shoot. Due to having a relatively young director and having acquired almost the entire availability of rooms at the hotel they were staying at, the cast and crew were able to enjoy an atmosphere rife with partying and recreational activity outside of shoots, sometimes partying until the early a.m. Danielle Harris was always present and enjoying the fun too, especially with her handy talent of being able to unlatch the room's locked minibar. Filming finally wrapped in mid-June of 1989, but the production had encountered other problems with the amount of material that they've accumulated. The final few weeks were fraught with last-minute changes, wholesale omissions of scenes, and the introduction of new material very late into the shoot, which meant the screenplay was almost ignored at times. They ranged from minor details, such as the fact that Tina was originally meant to wear a devil outfit, only to give that to Sammy when Othen and Gerard expressed concern that the audience would dislike it, to the moment when Michael is picking up Tina in the car, where he was originally meant to wear a Ronald Reagan mask, which was dropped due to not seeking permission to do it. Sometime during production, a cad insisted that Tina and Rachel's roles should be reversed, and that Rachel's character should be killed off early, to show that no one was safe from Maya's rampage. Many years later, Akkad expressed regret at the decision, as did Ellie Quarnell at the time, as she felt it was unfeasible that Rachel would survive the events of Four, only to be killed quickly in the next film. Rachel was also originally meant to be murdered by having scissors jammed down her throat, but Cornell protested that this was particularly undignified, especially as she'd just showered and been running around in a towel in the previous scenes. The scene was rewritten to reference the ending of Halloween 4, with Rachel being stabbed in the chest with scissors. The entire opening of the film with the Dr. Death character was shot and almost immediately disliked, leading to a more generic reclusive old man replacing the character with all of the occult paraphernalia removed in the reshoots. All scenes of Billy riding bicycles ended up on the cutting room floor, as did a lengthy sequence of Michael clashing with the SWAT team in the final third of the movie. The enigmatic man in black character was also conceived and inserted into the movie halfway through production, with no one knowing where the plot detail would lead to, even integrating the character into the film's ending, which now had Jamie being kidnapped by the figure at the film's conclusion. With so much wasted material that would never be used, and a confusing narrative constructed from the remaining leftover footage, with a generic excuse of it'll make sense in part six, tensions reportedly arose between director Dominique Othenin Gerard and Mustafa Akkad towards the end of the project. The film also ran into some problems with the MPAA, who initially granted the film an X rating unless certain sequences of violence were omitted. This included a shot of Mike twitching after getting the hand rate jammed into his head, a shard of glass going into an officer's face during a car attack, Billy's leg being mangled by Michael's car, Sammy's death, which originally showed her forehead being sliced open by the scythe, and finally Jamie having her legs stabbed into by Myers during the laundry chute bit. The film was then granted an acceptable R rating. The film was released on October 13th in 1989 to mostly negative reviews and audience reactions. Both franchise fans and general viewers were mostly confused by the addition of The Man in Black and the unexplained cult subplot, and the now tired-feeling slasher tropes and stock characters. As with most entries in the series, more recent reception has improved somewhat, 
but the film still remains a low-regarded entry in the overall franchise due to its confused identity. Me personally, I really don't mind the film at all. It's definitely not the worst Halloween film I've ever seen, and it at least tries to maintain some of the goodwill and the momentum generated by Halloween 4. It is admittedly a bit odd to see such glorious sunshine in certain shots, and the Cult of Thorn stuff is frustratingly underbaked in this iteration, but you do get a few decent kills, and of course we get to enjoy the presence of Danielle Harris and Donald Pleasance again. I do dislike the comedy cops though, I have to say, just as I did in Last House on the Left. They just don't belong for me personally. And I'll have to tackle the bone of contention, which is Tina, whom a lot of fans seem to regard with absolute hatred. I actually don't find her to be that annoying at all. In fact, she's heck of a lot more memorable than most slasher film characters, especially as she feels quite legitimately upbeat and herself, you know. I was upset as a kid, though, that Rachel died so quickly, so some of that childhood disappointment will stay with me to this day. The film, like most in the series, is available in many different formats if you want it, most notably in the Scream Factory Ultra HD 4K version, which miraculously has found the original opening footage featuring Dr. Death as an extra, so fans out there of Halloween 5 may just get their definitive version after all. Donald Pleasance, Danielle Harris and Ellie Cornell all reprise their role from the previous film. New faces appear in the form of Jeffrey Landham, who played Billy. He reappeared briefly as a choir singer in Home Alone 2, but he continues to have a career in theatre productions today. Tamara Glynn appears as Sammy, who'd already had TV spots in Knott's Landing and Freddy's Nightmares, and has continued making cult appearances in horror films since including the lead role in an upcoming remake of Savage Vengeance, which was originally an unofficial sequel to I Spit on Your Grave. Jonathan Chapin, who played Mike, had already been seen in 1984's 16 Candles, whilst Matthew Walker, who played Spitz, would later crop up in Child's Play 3, The Princess Diaries 2, and the 2016 film Mother's Day. Wendy Foxworth, who plays the polarising Tina, has popped up in various bits over the years, such as Summer Dreams, The Story of the Beach Boys, and 2017's The Labyrinth. Troy Evans is also a recognisable face as the deputy who protects Jamie in the film's final act, who's been in Under Siege, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Lawnmower Man, Demolition Man, and many, many others. One of the comedy cops was played by David Ursin, recognisable in flicks like Die Hard, Critters 2, Space Jam, and Jerry Maguire. And finally, Don Shanks, who played the hulking figure of Michael Myers, had already been in other slasher films like Silent Night, Deadly Night and Sweet Sixteen, and would go on to things like Three Ninjas Knuckle Up and also Dumb and Dumber. French-Swiss director Dominique Othenin-Gerard had already had After Darkness and the hospice under his belt before he got the job on Halloween 5. He subsequently went on to direct The Omen 4, and was also the associate director on the newly released Halloween Kills this year. Othenin Gerard also wrote the film, along with credits for Shem Bitterman, who worked on Tinseltown, Playdead and The Job. Producer Rick Nathanson later worked on TV horror Night Visions, Double Impact, Dragon, The Bruce Lee Story, and the Netflix sequel Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. Ramsey Thomas also produced. He went on to Boiling Point and Stargate in the 1990s. Cinematographer Robert Draper went on to the Netflix series of Creepshow, whilst the editor Jerry Brady went on to Boiling Point and Night Angel, both of the 1990s. 
Brady was assisted by Charles Tony, who'd already worked on a variety of cult horror films like Day of the Animals, Evil Speak, and One Dark Night. The special effects were done by several members of KNB FX Group, including F. Lee Stone, Howard Berger, Robert Kurtzman, Mark Maitre, and Greg Nicotero. The group have worked on so many projects that there's just too many to list here, but the chances are that you've likely seen other productions with their work in it. They were also assisted by Scott Oshita, who later worked on Alien 3, Species, and Godzilla, among others. That's Halloween 4 and 5 for you, so I hope you enjoyed listening to Nasty Pasty yet again during the spooky season. As mentioned earlier, there's some big changes coming to Nasty Pasty within the next few months, hopefully, and you should be hearing a little bit more from me in that regard soon. I'm still planning to continue with my small roster of films to cover, but I just couldn't pass up the chance to put out a Halloween-themed episode. Everyone out there, stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and here's to getting back to normal, eh? Bye, everyone.